Hello, everyone. Phil Giuliani here again. And this program is One in Messiah here on Messianic Lamb Network. I'm glad you could join us today. We're here twice a week, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern and Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. So I'm glad you were able to tune in. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome. And I hope you enjoy the program. I hope that you get some interesting information out of the teaching. And we hope that um, you'll come back and, and watch each show. Um, these programs are also then recorded on my YouTube channel, where if you go to that channel, you can find not only the LAM programs, but you can find many of my, all of my um, live presentations at the live session of One in Messiah, as well as some other uh, teachings. Uh, if you live in the Cleveland area, I'm located in Cleveland, and I do a live service of One in Messiah every Friday night, and it's uh, an Arab Shabbat service, um, very modified. We have some, we do the um, candle lighting, we do the opening prayers, including the Shema, the Vyahafta, and the Amidah. We do some praise and worship music. Then I do a teaching, and we get people from all different denominations, all different backgrounds that join us. And um, if you're in the area, I'd love to have you come in. We meet at 709 Brook Park Road, 709 Brook Park Road in Brooklyn Heights, which is Calvary Chapel of Cleveland Church. And we have a great facility there. Uh, Pastor Mike Booker has been very gracious in letting us use the facility. And I think if you stop by, you'll you'll enjoy it and you'll meet some interesting people that, like those of you that are watching, I'm sure, or else you wouldn't be watching, have a very deep interest in Messianic ministry, Hebrew roots of the faith, and so forth. So 709 Brook Park Road, Friday nights, we gather there at about 6.15. We start about 6.30. It's live streamed on my Facebook station or Facebook page, I guess it is. And I also then put that on the YouTube. The YouTube channel is One in Messiah Gift of Grace Ministries. One in Messiah Gift of Grace Ministries. Uh, so you can search for that on YouTube and I'm not sure how many videos there are there, but a lot. And um, there's also a podcast. If you go to any of the usual podcast platforms and search for Dr. Phil slash Gift of Grace, Dr. Phil slash Gift of Grace, you'll find the podcast. There's, I think, 850-some the last time I looked. Going back, I don't remember how many years probably nine or 10 years now, but um, those are various audio files, of course, that are also teachings and radio shows that I do. And, but anyway, that's enough advertising. In the uh, live version of One in Messiah, if I like to call it, or I, I guess it would be better to say on Friday nights, 
we spent uh, about three weeks talking about spiritual warfare based on Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, of course, is a very well-known, very popular chapter in the New Testament because Paul writes how we have to put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor. We can't be missing pieces of it. And he describes each piece of the armor and then also adds the sword of the spirit, which is the word. So the sword is the only offensive weapon. Everything else is defensive, including a shield to stop the fiery darts of the enemy. The shield is the only part of the armor, the only part of the defense that can be moved around. The only part of the defense that can change position. So I would recommend you go to that YouTube channel, One of Messiah, Gift of Grace Ministries. <clears throat> you can see the sessions that were done um, on the last two Friday nights. This is going to be a takeoff from that. I shouldn't say a takeoff, but an addition to that, which is going to be based entirely on the Psalms with one little extra scripture at the end, which is not a Psalm, but it comes from Second Samuel. But the one thing they have in common is that they are all about David, King David the man after God's own heart. And in the Psalms that we're going to go to, they are about defense, refuge, fortresses, rock. They are means of protection in spiritual warfare. And they are defense against attacks of the enemy. They are um, strong defenses which cannot be moved. And that's going to be one of the keys. And that's why this big rock or rocky up crop or whatever you would call this is behind me on the green screen because it's a matter of a rock being a defense. Keeping in mind, of course, that at the time these things are written, there are, of course, no explosives. <laughs> the only weapons are swords and spears and arrows, knives, rocks, <laughs> your fist. None of those things could penetrate this rock. So when you see these passages that we're going to get to from the Psalms, they talk about rocks and how the rocks can't be penetrated and how the rocks can't be moved. It's, remember, being written in 900 and something BC, it wouldn't really apply to 2024 AD, where various kinds of explosive munitions could pulverize almost any rock. So I know that you know that, but we have to kind of think about that because a rock was the main line of defense. When people built fortifications, they were made out of rock. Later on, when people made castles, 
They were made out of rock. And these were very strong defenses because they couldn't be penetrated. There's no way a sword or an arrow or a spear could go through solid rock like you see behind me. Plus, it made a position more defensible because the attacking forces were exposed. Now, that's an interesting concept about spiritual warfare. You know, we're not going to do Ephesians chapter 6 because we're going to do some Psalms, but, you know, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers. We're fighting an unseen enemy. You don't know what the enemy's up to. You don't see what he's up to. You don't always know what his strategy and plans are until it unfolds. If you're fighting an army of human beings, in other words, if you're fighting fellow human beings that are flesh and blood, you can see them, you can plan a defense, you can plan a counterattack, you can, by watching their movements, most of the time figure out where they're going, what's the plan, how it's going to affect you, how it's going to affect the people around you or your ministry or your church or whatever it is. But with an unseen enemy, with powers in the heavenly places, it says, we can't see the attack. We know that an attack is happening, but we can't see the attack forming. We can't see the, the, uh, the beings that are launching the attack. And we don't see weapons firing. So Paul points out in Ephesians 6 that we're in a very difficult battle. And therefore, we cannot make the plan of defense on our own. We can't come up with a plan that stops an enemy. And so he says, the only way to combat this is to put on the whole armor of God. Now, in that one sentence, you see the, the important point is God provides the armor. You have to put it on. You don't design the armor. He designs the armor. You just put it on. And again, we're not going to go through all that, but you know, there's a um, belt of truth, there's a um, breastplate of righteousness, there's a helmet of salvation, there's reinforced shoes that are the gospel, there's a shield to block the fiery darts, and there's the sword, which is the word. So spiritual warfare is serious business, and as human beings who exist in a physical world, we are definitely at a disadvantage. As you can see, even from that simple introduction, <laughs> we're fighting an unseen enemy who is much smarter than we are, has been around for a long time, doesn't get tired, doesn't have to sleep, doesn't have to eat, is way more intelligent than 50 of us put together, 
and he's developed strategies over the millennia, he knows what's going to work. So as um, one well-known radio teacher always says, if we, if we try to take Satan on by ourselves, we're a guaranteed casualty. Guaranteed casualty. So we have to put on the armor. We have to hold the sword. And that's kind of the, that's the New Testament representation of the war. We're going to see how King David, who wrote so many psalms about fighting and refuge and fortresses, and and he he knew these things not only as spiritual warfare, but very physical warfare. King Saul, various other enemies, his son Absalom, Philistines, a David was always, always in a fight with uh, physical enemies as well as principalities and powers that he couldn't see. And it's so char- and what is so characteristic of David is that he is a very physical person. He has women, he has children. He has power. He wants power. He wants to hide from the enemy. He wants to deceive the enemy. He wants to have people murdered. He puts people in puts people in a position where they will in fact be murdered if it seek if it fits his purposes. But he writes the beautiful Psalms. And I I don't think I've ever met a person in my lifetime as a believer that has ever said, ah, the Psalms are really boring. I've heard people say that about many books, but I have never, ever heard somebody say, ah, the Psalms are really boring. I don't like reading them because the Psalms are very powerful. They're so, they're written in such an incredible way that it captures your attention. They're poetic but they're powerful. And the same man who did all that stuff I just mentioned wrote most of those Psalms. And for those of you that know me, you know I'm going to point out that the scripture says that God says, David is a man after my own heart. And when he's anointed by the prophet Samuel at Jesse's house, there's a very powerful scripture that it's written there, a very powerful passage that says, the Holy Spirit rushed on David and never departed. So David had the Holy Spirit with him. He was a man after God's own heart. But yet he still did all those things that I mentioned above. So it's very interesting. And that also should be Um, An encouragement to us, because despite our human weaknesses, despite our human frailties, despite our human emotions, we're still used in God's plan. We're still used in various different ways that God sovereignly picks for us to be involved in. 
And we know as believers that the Holy Spirit rushes on us and doesn't depart. And despite all of those problems and frailties and weaknesses, guides us to what we're supposed to be doing. So we, I think any of us can identify with David because it's all, you know, there's a common term. It's part of the human condition. And it certainly is part of the human condition. So that's kind of the background of the Psalms. And we're, we're going to go through some of them. We're going through, I should say, part of some of them. Um, don't worry, we're not going to spend the rest of the time just putting scripture on the on the board and reading and reading and reading. But we're going to go into this idea of our defense in spiritual warfare. When Paul wrote to Timothy, everyone knows, or you should know, if you don't know, I don't know what to tell you, but in 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says all scripture is God-breathed. It's all God-breathed. And because the word is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, it doesn't just apply to a particular moment in time. The awesome thing, one of the awesome things about scripture is that it applies to every time in history. It applies to every person. It applies to every phase of someone's life, every time in someone's life. It isn't a snapshot of something like you read a historical account of something that happened in 1776. And you say, well, that's really interesting that that happened. And I'm affected by that, but that happened then. I can't relive that exactly the same way. But what the Spirit has done in the Scripture is, if all of that applies to you in real time, it isn't a dusty old book that was written thousands of years ago and then put up on a shelf somewhere, and once in a while you get the dust off of it and read a little bit of it. It's a breathing, living word. It isn't just black letters on a white page. And so what David wrote about defenses and fortresses and rocks applies to us today. We are in, I know many of you are going to say, it's always been like this. You know, in Second Peter, Peter's second letter, you know that he says, in the end time, scoffers will come. Saying, oh, come on, nothing's any different than it ever was. It's been like this since the creation. It's been like this since the times of the fathers. All the fathers went to sleep, and everything is still just the same as it was then. So, you know, let's not get hepped up about stuff that's happening now. Come on. Let's get real. Nobody knows when Yeshua is coming back, which is true. It might be today, and I hope it is. It might be in a week. It might be in a year. It might be in 50 years. We don't know. But to say that everything is always the same as it's always been is not right. We're now 
in such an intense time of spiritual warfare that it would be hard to think of a time where there's been more spiritual warfare, where demonic forces have infiltrated governments, churches, people, I mean, you name it, and it's been influenced by demons, it's been invaded by demons, it's been co-opted by demons, including churches, including churches. And you can see the great falling away that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've seen that happen. We can't even say in our lifetime. We've seen it happen over the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years. Things are much different now even than they were 20 years ago, even 15 years ago. And the demonic attack has been so fierce that it now has, like a good friend of mine says, at first we wanted God out of society, and then we kind of pushed him to the horizon. And now we've pushed him over the edge. We don't even want anything to do with you. We don't need you anymore. We'll take care of ourselves. We'll do what we want to do. It's the Tower of Babel times a thousand what's going on now. To the point where even common sense, even natural law has been violated, has been excused, has been falsified. So this is where we stand now. The churches are joining up happily. It's party time because the church is trying to be more and more like the world. Just like the Israelites wanted a king. And God said, you're not supposed to have a king. I'm your king. You are set apart. You are not supposed to be like the other people. And you remember what they answered to Samuel. We want a king because we want to be like everybody else. The church as the body of Messiah is not supposed to be like everybody else. We're supposed to be set apart. The church, in its broad sense, is supposed to be set apart. But in our time, especially in the last even two or three years, mainline churches have been rushing to join the world. Rushing to join the world. And so this is an incredibly intense spiritual battle. I tell people, look around you. It's not 1960 anymore. It's not even 2002 anymore. And another good friend of mine always says, if you don't know there's spiritual warfare going on around you, you're already a casualty. You're already a casualty. Satan is already taking care of you. So it's very intense. And so Ephesians 6, so important today, the armor and the sword. And we're going to go finally after this huge introduction. (laughs) We're going to finally go to the Psalms that I promised we were going to go to. And we're going to talk about David. 
And we're going to talk about military terms because this is a warfare. This is warfare. This is not some little, oh, these people are good, these people are bad. It's not like the cartoons we used to see when we were kids with the little angel telling you something on one shoulder and the devil telling you something on another shoulder. This is not some cutesy little cartoon. This is all-out warfare, and there's millions and hundreds of millions of people being lost. And the churches bear responsibility. How they teach. You remember in James, I think it's chapter 4, James says, if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be held to a higher standard because you influence people. You may take people in wrong directions, and you're responsible for that. So it is the military terms are used. You know, people think the Bible's a whole big book about peace and love, and, and it is, but it's also a term it's also a book about fighting. It's also a book about battles. It's always a, it's also a book about the constant struggle between good and evil the constant struggle between the two kingdoms. In fact, Yeshua, the night before he died, he said the the ruler of this world is going to be judged now. He called Satan the ruler of this world. Paul called him the prince of the power of the air. His influence was all around us. Paul didn't know anything about the electromagnetic spectrum, radio waves and television waves and internet, whatever it is, and cell phones and social media. And now we really see that Satan is in the power of the air. Paul called these things 2,000 years ago. So we do, in fact, use military terms. So let's see some of these defensive ideas that David talks about. We're going to start in Psalm 71, verse 3. Be my strong refuge, to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Woo! One verse. Strong refuge that I resort to well, once in a while, like every year or two when I'm in some kind of a jam. No. I resort continually because the battle is continually. You can't take refuge in anything else. He, capital H, is the strong fortress. You are my rock and my fortress. David has confidence that God is his defense. His defense and through these psalms that we're going to go through now, hopefully more quickly, we're going to see that he keeps repeating it. David keeps repeating it. He doesn't just mention it once or twice. He mentions it continually. Fortresses, rocks, refuge, strong towers. These are all defensive things that would have been very common in his time. Very common in Yeshua's time. It doesn't make really that much sense to us because 
obviously, with the weapons we have, having fortresses and strongholds and rocks, don't really mean much, but you get the idea. And he adds, God has promised to save him and calls this a command. This is very messianic. Here's King David. Here's King David. He's in the covenant, a covenant of law. He meditates on the law day and night, as he says. He doesn't keep the law, but he meditates on it day and night. His righteousness is measured by how well he does with the law. He doesn't do very well. Not very well at all. And remember, if you violate one, it's the same as violating them all. But, he says, God's given a command to save him. God is going to save him. This is a messianic passage. It's a messianic verse. It's a messianic word. Because God himself, Yeshua, is going to save him. And he has complete confidence in this. Same psalm. I have become a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. Okay, here the word wonder doesn't mean, wow, is that an awesome guy? I've become a wonder means people look at him and say, what's with him? People talk to him and say, man, what are you talking about? You're talking kind of weird now. You meet people at the coffee shop, tell them about Yeshua, preach the gospel to them. They say, what in the world are you talking about? You're weird. You're talking weird stuff. You must be some kind of narrow-minded person. You must hate everybody. You must be a Bible thumper. You must be one of those do-gooders. Hey, I can live my life the way I want to live my life. And no one is going to tell me what to do. No one is going to say, hey, you better do this. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I don't care what kind of old superstition you're bringing out. I don't care what kind of book you have. That means nothing to me. There's no roots. There's no foundation. There's no anything. So we've become a wonder to people because they wonder what we're thinking about. So if you make some comment about abortion or same-sex marriage or some kind of gender confusion, people look at you with wonder, not in a not wonder in the sense of wow, which they should be doing if we're telling them the truth and the word, but they look at where they wonder how in the world we can think the way we do. So he says, I'm a wonder to many. Because when I say stuff like this, they think I'm weird. He says, but you are my strong refuge. Again, a strong refuge. Repeats it again. We have to go to that strong refuge. We're a wonder to many. What? You really believe that? You're hateful. You hate everybody. And this doesn't just come from strangers at the coffee shop or people at work or people at the grocery store or wherever you're talking to people. This can come from your family members. 
This can come from your next door neighbor. This can come from your friends. Hey, I can't, I can't believe that you really think that way. When I was, when I was working and would witness everybody who came into my office, very commonly people would say, wow, you take this Jesus stuff really seriously, don't you? And I say, well, what should I take more seriously than that? And then they would start with the eye rolling and the smart looks and thinking, what a weirdo. So, because you're, you're a wonder in that you're considered hateful and you're considered to be the one without common sense. Let's look at Proverbs 18.10. This, of course, is not David. This, of course, is Solomon. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. What's a strong tower? The name of the Lord. All capital letters. This is God's name. This is Yahweh. This is I am. This is I am that I am. This is I am who am. Present tense. It was true in 900 BC, and it's true in 2024 AD. His name is even a strong defense. Now, and again, if you're not into, well, I shouldn't say into, if you don't know a lot about the Tanakh, <coughs> Torah, the prophets, and their writings, and you're a believer and you go to a, quote, New Testament church, and every week you hear a message from gospel gospels or one of Paul's letters. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if you don't know the roots, you don't know how important the name is. Although Paul, again, gives us an example of that in Philippians chapter 2. Peter gives us an example of that Pentecost morning. There's no other name by which we must be saved. There's no other name other than the name of Yeshua. Paul says, he's the name above all names. At his name, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name is important. The name and of course, as you know, if you're watching this, Hashem. Many Jews, many Messianic Jews call God Hashem, which simply means the name, because his name contains all of his attributes, his strength, his nature. He says on many occasions, I'm zealous for my name, for my name. That's another concept that's really been lost in the modern church. Nobody really even talks about that anymore. But of course, so have sin and repentance, so that's not a big surprise. But his name, Hashem, contains everything. He's Al Shaddai, he's the all-sufficient one. He doesn't need anything to exist. He doesn't need us to provide him with anything. To exist. He's self-sufficient, self-existent. 
and has always been. All his covenants, all his promises are all wrapped up in his name. How many times in scripture, we don't have time to go through all this, but how many times in scripture do you say do you see where it says God God says, I swear by my name? Now, if we go, if we take an oath, whether it's a legal proceeding in a courtroom or some other place, we make an oath and we say, So help me, God. You're invoking God's name saying, what I'm telling you is the truth. So if it's not the truth, then you stand guilty of profaning his name. And as you know from the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, taking his name in vain never will go unpunished. It's a commandment that includes a punishment. Just like the honor your father and mother includes a blessing, the don't take my name in vain, includes a punishment. You're going to be punished for doing it. You're not going to get away with it because he guards his name. So Solomon, in this case, not David, says, I run to him. I run to his name for protection because his name is his nature and his attributes. Psalm 61, back to David. Verse 1. No, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry about the slide. I think it's verse 3. For you have been a shelter to me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Selah. Selah means stop and consider this. Stop and meditate on this. Don't just read it and then go away. Sit in your pew, sit in your chair, sit in your family room, sit on your deck. And if you've read this, stop and think about it for a few minutes. David says, you've been a shelter for me. David went through, huh, look how many times Saul is chasing him and he's hiding. There's plots against him all over the place generals who turn on him, his son who turns on him. He's been a shelter. That wasn't just a shelter one time, a strong tower from whatever enemy. You know, the tower was a strong part of a castle, of a fortress. Because I'm going to live in your house forever. I'm going to live in the shelter of your wings. I'm going to trust in the shelter of your wings. Isaiah says there's healing in your wings. The wings are another name for the long tassels on the talit that represents the directions, north, south, east, and west. So David says, I'm going to live in your tent. Remember, there was no temple yet. Tabernacle is the word for tent. I'm going to live in your tabernacle forever, and I'm going to trust in the shelter of your wings. In other words, God's prayer shawl, God's talit, is going to protect David. Just beautifully and very powerfully stated. So David talks about his distress, and he abides in him and trusts in him. 
And as I said, we don't, we can't trust in our own plans and our own ideas. We can't trust in the systems of the world. For years, that I, my wife and I worked in pro-life ministries, and I'm sure many of you have worked in pro-life ministries, still working in pro-life ministries. Very commonly, there was this idea, well, if we get two more senators, well, if we get a president, well, if we get two more justices, well, if we... But see, doing that is you're counting on the systems of the world. Well, the legislative system will fix this. But it is a spiritual power. It's a spiritual problem. You have to change people's hearts one at a time until they realize that this is a horrible evil that takes the life of a living human being that has a soul. You can't count on the systems of the world to get through this. David says, I want to abide there forever. I'll stay in his fortress. I'll stay under his wings forever because it's strong. I'm protected and I'm safe there. Does that mean you're never going to have problems? No. Does that mean you'll never be killed? No. Does that mean you're never going to die from something? No. But it means you're going to be safe. And to put it simply, and I know there's no time in heaven, we'll be outside of time, but so that we can put it in a, a system we can understand, after you've been in heaven for about 10 billion years, you're not even going to remember what you died from, nor are you going to care. You're going to be strong. It's going to be strong. You're going to be protected and you're going to be safe. Psalm 62. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Great song by Marty Getz. He is my defense. Marty Getz is a close personal friend of mine. He also grew up in the Cleveland area, but I didn't know him then, of course. <laughs> but we see each other here and there, and we stay in touch by text and phone calls and emails. And it's a great friend. We love to talk about the old days in Cleveland and if you know, he does has a tremendous amount of music. Um, been singing with his daughter Misha for quite some time, and he has a song called "He Is My Defense." If you've never heard it, or you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, or you don't know who Marty Getz is, please go Google it and listen to the song. He only is my rock of my salvation. Are there 282 other rocks? Nope. Are there 12 other ways of salvation? Nope. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. He provides the armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. And I won't be moved. I've got the best possible defense. I'm going to be safe. There is no other defense that can compare to this. We won't be shaken. We won't be moved if we stay on that rock 
and if we stay in the wings, and if he, capital H, is your defense, your own plans could be shaken. You know, during during the um, COVID pandemic, it was very common to hear teachers say everything that can be shaken is being shaken, and it was in fact being shaken. But if you stand in his defense, you won't be moved while everything is shaking. So even when the enemy attacks. So in this idea of the rock, you know, the old term rock of ages, the rock of ages is our rock. So sometimes we can be confused. Sometimes we can wonder what's happening. We can think, I don't understand what's happening here, but we're not going to be shaken. Because there is no better defense. You won't be greatly moved. Verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Very similar to verse 2. In fact, it's almost word for word. I'm not going to be moved because I have the strongest possible defense that's impenetrable. Verse 7, in God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. So he expands on it. He's the rock of my strength. He's my defense, but he's also the rock of my strength. And he's my refuge. Repeats it again. He uses the word refuge and fortress and strong tower and protection many, many, many times in this whole, in, in all these similar Psalms. And he says, God is my salvation. This is messianic because the Messiah, Yeshua, God man, is the God man. God is our salvation and my glory. We don't have any glory of our own. Read the book of Romans. It will show you as you walk down the Roman road, so to speak, you realize you don't have much righteousness and you don't have any glory and you don't really have much of anything going for you unless you're with Yeshua and unless the the Ruach, the Holy Spirit, is living in you. So he says, God is my salvation and my glory. I don't have salvation on my own. I'm not here earning it. I'm not here telling people how glorious I am. I'm not walking around telling people how awesome I am. I'm saying he's my defense. He's the rock of my strength. And he's the refuge. He repeats it again. Now he says, I I shall not be moved at all. Before it was, I won't be greatly moved. Now he says, I'm not going to be moved at all if you're in that refuge. The churches have surrendered the refuge. Eh, we don't have to go to that refuge. We'll just go with the attack, and the attack's not so bad. We'll just surrender, and maybe the attack will stop. Then maybe we can all just get along. That's the strategy of our time. It's 21st century Christianity in America. And oh, by the way, God also wants you to be rich. So sign here. 
mean, these are, these are things that are taking people down every path there is except discipleship. And what he's saying here is where our salvation is, that's where our glory is. What else matters? If you accomplish everything there is to accomplish in the world and you're lost, and again, using the example of time, if you've been in hell for 10 billion years, you're not even going to be thinking about your accomplishments while you were on earth. How many degrees you had, how much money you made, how everyone respected you and gave you awards. That's going to be the furthest thing from your mind. So what else matters? Psalm 94. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. Repeats it again. Yahweh, God, Lord, all capital letters in your English Bible. He's been my defense. He's provided my armor. He's been the rock of my refuge. He's been the fortress. He's been the protection. He's been the safe place. I can't make a safe place of my own. You're trying to make a safe place of your own. Satan's just going to laugh. He's not even... He'll send some pipsqueak demon to take care of you because he'll be laughing too hard. Again, he repeats rock and refuge and defense. You see how many Psalms that this is mentioned in. Solid, secure, unmovable, and stronger than any fortification. A fortress built out of rock was impenetrable <clears throat> unless you could get into the gate somehow. Because, of course, people had to be able to get out and get in. But the fortress itself that was rock was solid, secure, and unmovable. And no other fortification can match that. So David brings this up over and over and over again. And keep in mind that David is a military man. He plots military strategy. He doesn't just play the harp. He isn't just one of the people that goes to the, the tent every Shabbat. He is involved intimately in military matters. He understands these terms because he lives these terms. Down to verse 23. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. So you don't have to worry about what you're going to do to the enemy because he's going to take care of the enemy. He's going to take care of the enemy. He's brought on them their own iniquity, and he's going to cut them off. He's going to deal with them based on what they've done in their own wickedness, and they're going to be cut off. They're a threat right now. These demonic attacks going through our world now and all the people that are participating in them, which is many, well, they're all going to be cut off. They seem very powerful now, but 
Remember in Psalm 2, all the plots, all the schemings against God and his anointed, which means, of course, Yeshua, God sits in the heaven and laughs at them. We're seeing that. Everything in this culture can be tolerated except Yeshua. There's reasons for that, because these are demonic attacks. Demons don't want people to know about Yeshua, don't want people to be saved. So they're going to be cut off. Psalm 18, I promise we're almost done with the Psalms. 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Here we go. Again, rock, fortress. Now he adds deliverer. He's the strength. He's the stronghold. He has the, he's the horn of my salvation. You know, horns were used to carry the oil. Oil was a representation of the Ruach, the Holy Spirit. People were anointed from a horn of oil. So your anointing comes from a horn. He's the horn of salvation. He's the horn of the oil. And he's also your shield. Another defensive term. A deliverer from my distress. A deliverer. Yeshua is a deliverer. Our distress is sin. Yeshua is the deliverer from our slavery to sin to our bondage to sin. He preserves us. There's a Hebrew word in there that, that refers to a fountain of good. And it actually means an inexhaustible fountain that has endless provisions. Endless provision. It's an endless stream of grace that comes. And David mentions the shield so that we're not wounded by the darts and arrows. Paul picks this up in Ephesians 6. The shield stops the fiery darts of the enemy. Of Satan. Fiery darts cause horrible wounds. The shield protects you from that. And again, just briefly, 2 Samuel 22. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Deliver me from the hands of the enemies, from the hands of Saul. He's my deliverer. These things are messianic, the God of my strength and whom I will trust, my shield and horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. Because God is his savior. The word for salvation, of course, is Yeshua. Yeshua is his savior. Is his salvation, is the horn of salvation, the oil. In Luke 169, Zechariah says this about Yeshua when he does his beautiful song at the um, when John the Baptist is circumcised and named. He says, you're the horn of salvation. And David has trust in this. So you see, along with the defense, there's also the horn, there's also the anointing, there's also the deliverance. And so it, it's tied in with Ephesians 6. This is so important in our time that I hope you can consider these things 
or Silas, David would say, I hope you step back, step back and consider these things because we are in a frightful war. And we are not going to win it on our own. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining me. And I hope you've gotten something out of this. And I hope you'll join me again on Monday and then again next Thursday here on Messianic Lamb Network. <laughs>